You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Well, some of you don't know this about me, but growing up, I had a privileged position. I had a privileged position. My mom was the principal of my high school. Now, some of you might think that sounds awful. Like, I would not want that level of an invasion of privacy. There would be no space between my social life and my family life. Others of you might think, well, that would have been absolutely stressful. Like, I would have had to be the model student all the time. And others of you, maybe, uh, perhaps a lot of you, were homeschooled in this room this morning, and you say, ooh, I didn't even know that was a privilege. My mom was the principal and my coach and, and everything else. But for me, actually, it was pretty awesome. It was a, it was a great privilege. I, I went to a, a public school, and it will be up on the screen, uh, up in western New York, and it was pretty big. And as a kid, I was an absolute opportunist, uh, meaning that the cards were dealt, I got two aces, and I said, let's milk it. This is a favorable situation. Who cares? Let's go. Nepotism, favoritism, let's go. God's God's sovereignty, right? So, you know, I won't get into it all this morning, but it was great. I got to pick my classes. I got to pick my classmates. I got to pick my teachers. I had hall passes. If I was late, I wasn't late. Hall pass. I wish that were true today. I had somewhat of an immunity, we might say, to getting in trouble. Now, I was a pretty good kid, but when the school and the teachers know who your mom is when they know who the sheriff is. Uh, people treat you pretty good. Now, I like to say I had privilege. I had a privilege. Now, on a more serious level, in real life, people can get really upset when they hear and see actual double standards. Many of you remember that just recently in the 2021 to 2020, uh, 2020 rather, to 2021 COVID crisis, there was a famous phrase that many of you will automatically remember that was uh, aimed at the political class. It, it reemerged during that time. It was aimed at both, both Republicans and Democrats. It, it, it didn't matter. And the phrase was, rules for thee, but not for me. Some of us remember this. Rules for thee, but not for me. It was mainly in response to politicians doing double standard stuff to the hypocrisy that was happening all over. Essentially what was happening was they'd say no meetings, no more than five in a room, make sure you're, you're wearing your mask, and then they would get caught uh, having big parties and hosting gatherings and stuff like that with masks on and, and things like that. And so people got fed up, you, you remember, quite, quite recently. They said that's hypocrisy. They said there's no accountability there. There's two sets of rules. And the phrase, rules for thee, but not for me, was reborn. Now, I mentioned all of this because our passage this morning is all about the truth of God's righteous standard, God's fair, impartial, consistent judgment of all. One size fits all. We all stand before him. We all will give an account. And this morning, we'll be reminded that our proximity to church or to spiritual things or to the Bible, or to Christian music, or to a pastor, to morality, to living generally right, those things are not going to do much. We might think those things make us privileged, 
but those things will not create double standards in God. God doesn't owe us anything, we might say, if we're nice. Those things won't make us immune. We all will give an account. And God's judgment is fair. It's consistent. It's impartial. It's perfect. It's good. There's no double standards in it. There's no hypocrisy in it. There's no nepotism or opportunism in it. It's not based on our class or our race or our family or our jobs, but it's based on you. It's based on what you've done with Jesus. It's based on what you've done with your life. Now, this all, uh, all really leads us to the main I- idea this morning, the implication of that, and it really leads us to the main idea of this passage that we'll be looking at this morning. And the main idea, it's going to be up on the screen, it's this. Religion cannot save you. Religion cannot save you. Religion there meaning the use of your willpower to do good things. The adherence to a creed or to a code. Your proximity to Christian things or spiritual things. Your practice of morality. These things cannot save you. Now why is that? Why is that? Because God is looking at the heart. He's looking at our hearts. And ultimately, these things don't change the heart. These things might hide the ugliness of our hearts, but they ultimately don't change our hearts. And when he evaluates us, what he's looking for isn't that we've conformed to some external type of religious code or rhythm, that we're we're acting or trying to be righteous. Those things aren't going to exempt us. What he's looking for is that our hearts have been transformed. The inner self is inclined to him, that our hearts are different. And of course, we get that kind of heart through faith in Jesus Christ by the power of his spirit, the one who changes us, the one who then changes us and causes us to live differently from the heart. Now, my points are going to be up on the screen. They're a bit intense as this week and last week, these texts are particularly intense They're going to flow from the text. A lot of churches would have skipped, like I mentioned last week, last week's text, and also perhaps this week's text. We think this is important, so we want to put it in front of you. Number one, God's judgment is inescapable, Romans 2, 1 through 4. Number two, God's judgment is righteous and impartial, verses 5 through 16. And then finally, we'll see God's promise of true righteousness at the end of Romans chapter 2. This all gets at the fact that God has a righteous standard, and it's the same standard for everybody. It has to do with the heart, not religiosity, or any other privilege we may think we have. Now, if you're joining us for the first time, or you've been in and out, we recently started the book of Romans. And the the, the beginning first few chapters, as I mentioned, are here uh, this morning. They're intense. When we read these chapters, it's not amen, it's oh no. And you can see again by, of course, these points this morning. Last week we looked at chapter 1, and if you were in D.C. that day, you probably woke up like me and you heard thunder. You saw an overcast uh, sky. It was dreary. It was, uh, it was a miserable day, and I thought this is the perfect passage for that particular day. Uh, Romans 1, it opens up the chapter we read and we looked at last week, and it's a scathing critique of humanity. It says, everybody knows God, but people take the truth of God and they suppress the truth of God. We know, but we don't really want to know. Like a beach ball in the pool, we push it down. We push the truth about God down because we don't want to deal with it sometimes. Then it goes on and it says that humanity, in large part, worships other gods. 
We want control. We want authority. There's a lie in our hearts since the garden. The lie says, don't trust God. He's not good. He doesn't have the best interests in mind for you. So we turn to other gods. And in turning to those other gods, we lose what we could have had in God. Ultimate security, ultimate salvation, ultimate significance, faith, hope, love, value. The passage then finally says, as a result of pushing God out of the center of our lives, things begin to unravel. And Romans 1 calls this unraveling God's wrath. It's a very scary phrase. And of course, in Romans 1, that doesn't mean thunder or lightning bolts. It doesn't mean fire falling from the sky. It means God saying, fine, have what you want. Do you, you want that? Have it. In Romans 1, it ends with a, a picture of the state of humanity. It says in verse 29, it'll be up on the screen, they are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, howdy, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedience to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. It's a scathing critique. He's prosecuting humanity, so to speak. He's bringing an accusation, he's bringing evidence, and he's looking for the indictment. And the point is, he's trying to help us to see our need for the gospel. He's trying to help us to see our need for a righteousness that comes from outside of us, not a righteousness we work up from inside of us. He's trying to help us to see we need God's grace. We need God's power. We need his mercy. Now, as Romans 2 starts, the bad news this morning is that the prosecution has not rested. <laughs> his point so far Thus, is that so many people in this world push God out, and as a result, they're bad apples. They sleep around, they're liars, they're cheats, they're slanderers, they're gossips, they're materialists, they're anti-family, they go to sex parades, they're murderers, they're bullies, and the prosecution knows as he's sharing those things, there's another class of people. They're hearing this, and they're saying, yes, yes, stick it to them. That is so good. Those are the bad people. Call them out. We're the righteous people. Now, who are those people? Those are what we might call the moralists. And the Apostle Paul is about to level them. And he's about to level us. He's going to say, you are no different. Fundamentally, you're the same. Your heart's nature without the grace of God is just the same. You just sin differently. It really leads us to our first point. God's judgment is inescapable. Therefore, you have no excuse O oh man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. In other words, he says to the O oh man, a fill-in word there for the moralist, you're no better. He says just because you hide your sin, just because you limit your sin perhaps, or put a religious veneer over your sin, that doesn't mean your heart is ultimately right. He says, judging people when you're doing similar makes it even clearer that you're bad in the first place. You condemn yourself. So he's talking especially to what we might call the religious hypocrite here. Now, what is a religious hypocrite? Well, it's someone, verse 1, who passes judgment when they themselves practice the very same things. Verse 1, they're passing judgment so as to not look at their heart. They're passing judgment so as to not look at at their heart. Now, passing judgment, of course, doesn't mean that it's wrong to stand for the truth or that you can't call out somebody in love 
It doesn't mean that all criticism is unjustified. It's not saying that we can't hold people accountable. Passing judgment in this context refers to the person who calls things out and other people, but does it with the attitude of, you're lost, I'm glad because now I feel better about myself. Passing judgment in this context is the person who calls out things and people, but does it with the attitude of, they're worthy of judgment, but I'm not. They're worthy of God's justice and judgment, but I'm not. They're using judgment to not look at their heart. Now, we have a similar concept for this that many people know. Many of you will know this phrase right away. We use it in relationships. We use it in work. A couple thousand years later, Sigmund Freud coined the phrase projection. Projection. Projection is basically doing the same thing. It's using judgment to not look at your heart. It's using the judgment of others to not look at your heart. A common example is in relationships. Say Deborah forms a new relationship with Abraham. But let's say Deborah in the past has been betrayed. So now she struggles to trust anybody. So the way perhaps projection could work is that instead of acknowledging her own pain, her own insecurities, she now projects distrust on Abraham. And Deborah says, I can't believe you're going out tonight again. You're probably just using it as an excuse to find other girls. And Abraham says, what? I, I love you. I'm totally committed to you. And Deborah says, I just can't trust anybody. In that conversation, in that hypothetical, she would be projecting her distrust on Abraham, her insecurities on Abraham. She's not looking at her heart first. It's just a projection. Or take an example of work. Say Solomon starts in a new office, but after a while, Solomon becomes quite overwhelmed. He's working big, long hours. He's stressed. So the way projection could work is that instead of acknowledging his own limitations, instead of perhaps seeking help, he blows up on his staff. Solomon says, I just can't believe how dumb everybody is in my office. This is the most incompetent office ever. Now, some of you, that might actually be your office, but if this was projection, Solomon would be projecting his feelings of being overwhelmed and stressed on his heart. He not be looking at his heart first. It's projection. Projection is using judgment to not look at your heart. And this is precisely what the religious hypocrite does. This is what we do if we fall into moralism. They use judgment. High standards on others, low standards on themselves. Thus, they cannot see their heart. They deceive themselves. The passage goes on, verse 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. That is that list of sins in Romans 1. Do you suppose, O man, O moralist, O self-righteous, do you suppose, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no, verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? In other words, he says, O moralist, O self-righteous, do you know that you're just like everybody else? You can judge all day, you can know the Bible all day, but you'll face the same judgment as everybody else. It's inescapable. God sees your heart, and he wants you to repent. He wants you to recognize you're not in control and to give it all to him. The passage continues, and we see our second point. God's judgment is righteous and impartial. Again, this is a difficult 
passage, verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent or defiant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He explains, verse 6, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. In other words, he's saying on judgment day, God's justice will be fair. It'll be perfect. It'll be consistent. There'll be no double standards in it. He says, oh, religious hypocrite, oh, moralist, it won't be based on what your proximity was to Christian things or who you hung out with or closeness to a pastor or knowledge of the Bible or your race or your class or your family or whatever else. But interestingly here, he says it'll be based on who you are and what you did. Who you are and what you did. He adds verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, meaning everyone, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. So it's based on who you are and what you did. Now this should raise some eyebrows. This should raise some eyebrows. We should say, wait, I thought salvation was through grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus alone. I thought salvation ultimately was through grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone. Well, don't worry, it is. He's just said that in chapter 1, and in the next chapter and in the rest of the book, it's going to be all about that. We're saved by the sheer grace of God. The thing that gives us salvation is our connection to Jesus Christ. That's it, the one who died for us, who lived for us. His mercy alone, we can't add anything to it. But what's, what, what's, what this is talking about is from another perspective, from the perspective of judgment, not salvation. It's talking about how God will evaluate. The picture is he'll look out like an inspector upon us, and he'll evaluate fairly and justly. And the kind of person who gets eternal life is the person whose works, whose life shows that they got it. They understood it. They sought God for a new heart. They realized even their, in their attempts at doing good works, they were selfish at the core. Religiosity didn't work. They didn't say, you know what? Faith is just about following the rules. It's about obedience, because when I'm obedient, God will take me into heaven. They realized that they needed a righteousness outside of themselves, a strength, a healer outside of themselves. And so they trusted in him. And as a result, their lives were different as a result. A good way to remember this is we're saved by faith alone, but faith is never alone. We're saved by faith alone, but faith is never alone. Real faith, a saving faith, is always accompanied by a heart that's been changed and a life that backs it up. Who you are and what you did. The best illustration of this is a lit candle. The illustration goes, the Christian life is like a lit candle. The spark is faith. It starts the journey. It creates the light. And the light is also faith. We live by that light. We, we walk not by sight, but by faith. But with that light, that faith also comes heat. And of course, that heat represents something else. It represents godliness, our works, sacrifice, selflessness. You can't separate the two, the point is. 
They're inseparable. We're not saved by our godliness or by our works or by our sacrifice or by our selflessness. We're saved by Jesus' godliness and his love and his sacrifice and his works. But knowing him produces those things in us. So much so that on, on judgment day, God will see it, this passage says. He'll see the spark. He'll see the light. He'll see the flame, however faint or however, however strong. And he'll, he'll give us eternal life to those who really know him, those who whose hearts have been changed by the gospel. The passage continues, and Paul goes on to show how God shows no partiality, how he's fair, the same standard. It's consistent. Verse 12, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. In other words, he's saying... God's judgment. He's saying God's salvation has nothing to do with whether or not you were raised in a Christian family or raised in a cave. What matters is what are you doing with the truth of the gospel now? How are you relating to God and his ways now? Verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even accuse them on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. The point being God's judgment is fair because everybody has a shot. The basis for God's judgment, Paul says, isn't that someone grew up around religious things or didn't grow up around religious things. The basis for, for God's judgment, Paul says here, is everybody has received the light. What are you doing with the light you have received? He gives what we would call the moral argument here for the existence of God. He says everybody on the planet knows there's a God, whether they've been fully informed or not. God's basic ways are written on their hearts. He says every person is pre-programmed with a conscience. If you do bad, you feel it. If you do good, you feel it. This points to the fact, Paul says, that there is a God. And of course, he says that's good news. It means God's justice can be equally applied to everyone. No one has an advantage. Everybody on earth will give an account to Jesus Christ for the light they have received. But as we'll see in a few weeks, that's also bad news because of human nature. The passage continues, and we see our third and final point, God's promise of true righteousness. Verse 17. A lot of text here this morning. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. In other words, he's saying the same thing he was saying to the religious hypocrite. He's saying they're inconsistent. Deep down inside, their heart motives are still off. He says, just because you hide your sin or you limit your sin or maybe you put a religious veneer around your heart doesn't mean your heart is right. He says, you say, don't steal. But he says, there's plenty of examples from your life of taking more than belongs to you. He says, you don't, he says, don't commit adultery. 
But he says you sexually fantasize about people perhaps that are not your spouse. He says the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Meaning religiosity stinks. Self-righteousness isn't attractive. It makes a person smug. It makes them oversensitive. It makes them judgmental. It makes them hypocritical. He adds, verse 25, For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. In other words, religion cannot save you. Religion, of course, meaning the use of your willpower alone to do good things, your adherence to a creed or a code, your proximity to spiritual things, even good spiritual things, your practice of morality alone, those things can't save. Why? Because God is looking at our hearts. He's looking at our hearts. And those things cannot change our hearts. Those things might hide the ugliness of our hearts, but they can't change our hearts. The Bible says our hearts are desperately sick. We are utterly inconsistent. And what Paul's been doing here is showing us our need for the gospel. Our need for a righteousness outside of us. Our need for a grace that comes into us. It's not primarily that we need to be baptized or join a church or say a prayer. What we need primarily, the Bible says over and over and over again, is a new heart. A new heart. And he says here that true faith, righteousness, comes not by our external actions, religiosity, but it comes by our hearts being transformed. This imagery of the circumcision of the heart, verse 29, by the Spirit of God. And we get that heart change, of course, by the power of the Spirit, through faith in Jesus Christ, the one who changes us, the one who gives us a new heart. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells a famous parable that really sums up this whole thing. It really sums up Paul's prosecution of humanity. That really sums up Romans 1 and Romans 2. It's the parable of the prodigal son. And in the parable of the prodigal son, there's a dad, there's a younger brother, and there's an older brother. And in the story, the younger brother, he runs away from the father. And the younger brother, he does crazy things. He, he parties it up. He sins a lot. He's the drunk. He's the prostitute. He's the hookup guy. He's the drug dealer, the hedonist. And the story goes that he finally repents. The, the younger son repents. He sees the, the, the folly of his ways, and he comes back to the father. And the father is so happy, we read in the parable of the prodigal son. He has open arms, and he's... He's ecstatic that the son is back. It's a picture of God's grace to us. It's a picture of God's redemption to us. And of course, Romans 1 represents this younger son. The younger son represents Romans 1. Irreligion, turning from God, rebellion. But the older son, the older son in this story, he gets mad. At the end of the, the parable of the prodigal son, the, the, older, the older son is, is quite angry. His, his younger brother comes back. And he's mad that the father extends grace. 
He says, I've been serving you forever. And yet the story ends with the older son enraged. He's mad at the grace that the father gives to the younger son. Why? Because it contradicts the entire life principle that he's built his life on, which is, I do good, therefore you owe me. I do good, therefore you owe me. The older son, of course, is Romans 2. Religion. Trying to use God. Trying to make him owe you something. Romans 1 is the younger son. Romans 2 is the older son. The point of the story is that it's only in God's redemption that we find hope. It's only in the gospel that we find a new heart. Because at the end of the day, the gospel is all about faith, not control. Grace, not debt. Humility, not pride. Redemption, not self-justification. Receiving, not earning. Relationship, not religion. Trust, not works. Freedom, not slavery. It's the thing that changes our hearts. Receiving a righteousness from outside of us that revolutionizes within us. A rightness from Jesus Christ that gives us ultimate security, a living joy. Religion ultimately is all about us, but the gospel is all about a person, Jesus Christ, who Romans says is the free gift of righteousness that can be received by faith, which means by believing and trusting in Jesus Christ, by knowing him, we can have the very righteousness of God. We can find what we've always been looking for, what we've always been trying to earn, what we've been always trying to get by knowing God, by trusting him, by knowing him. This morning, our worth is not tied to our moral achievements or our efforts, but it's tied to the immeasurable mercy and grace of God. Receive this mercy this morning. You can't do it by yourself. God is a gracious, good, and merciful Father. He sent His Son to die for you, to pay the price that you and I should have, pray, should have paid and live the life that we never could have lived. Trust in Him this morning. Believe in Him this morning. Our good deeds can't earn the way. Only God and His mercy can. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.